Hi, I'm Adam Grant, and you may know me from the podcast Work Life. As an organizational psychologist, I know that sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to question the way we've always done it. On my new show with the TED Audio Collective, Rethinking, I talk to some of today's greatest minds about how they see the world, from scientists to artists, people from Brene Brown to Lin-Manuel Miranda to Mark Cuban, and explore the assumptions they challenge and the mindsets that fuel their success. Find Rethinking wherever you listen. My mother used to put me alone on an airplane from Minnesota to California when I was growing up at seven. We just took the baby monitor out of our daughter's room and she's seven. So it is like the absolute polar opposite. I wear many hats in my life. A lot of people might think of me as a venture capitalist, entrepreneur, or CEO, but being a mom is my favorite and most important title. As a parent of two children, and soon to be three, raising my kids has brought me more joy than anything else. But that doesn't mean it's always been easy. Balancing work and taking care of the kids can create a ton of mom or parent guilt. And this is true whether you have a job or are full-time parenting. You're constantly learning on the fly and adjusting to the individual differences of your children while simultaneously managing the endless challenges of this rapidly evolving world. How much technology exposure should I give them? Am I being too much of a helicopter parent? Am I not present enough for them? And where does my relationship and my personal time fit in amongst all of this? We all want to be great moms and dads. We just wish we could do it with a little more confidence and a little less chaos. And that's why today's episode is so special and exciting. I'm joined by Dr. Becky Kennedy and Nate Burkus. Dr. Becky is a clinical psychologist, a mom of three, and the founder of Good Inside. She is an expert at helping parents find calm and reshape their expectations about parenting. Nate Burkus is an award-winning interior designer who has been the host of several different TV shows, launched multiple furniture lines, and so much more. But in this episode, he's actually here to share his experiences as a father of two children. Parenting is a very unique job, and the ways we are being advised to do it now are so much different than ever before, with so many new challenges than even our parents faced while they were raising us. This will be a wide-ranging conversation that will help you navigate these issues, learn new ways to communicate, and discover the most effective ways to raise happy, healthy kids in today's world. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Oh my gosh, so excited to have Dr. Becky Kennedy and Nate Burkus together for the first time. They haven't met each other yet on this show to talk about all things parenting and how it has evolved from when we were kids to now when we are all parents. Nate, let me start with you. You have two kids, is that correct? Can you tell us about them? Yes, so I, I, we have two children, my husband and I, Poppy, age seven, and Oscar, age four. And they're great. I mean, I was very initially disappointed that we weren't having a boy first. And my husband said to me um, in the car when we found out we were having our daughter first, I'll give you 10 minutes to mourn that Um, but you should have in mind that boys who grew up with an older sister are less of a douchebag. And I said, okay, that rings true. Like I'll buy that. 
hundred <laughs> percent. And luckily it's turned out to be true. Like neither of our children are that. Um, but um, our son is super, super sweet and super happy. We just had their conferences and their teachers both said to us, your kids are just really happy kids. They're sweet. They're nice. They're helpful. They're empathetic, um, which, you know, for us as parents is the only thing really sort of like our main priority. Like, I don't need a rocket scientist. I don't need, you know, them to solve anything. Um, but I do need them to care about other people and care about themselves. Have courage and be kind. A little bit of a family yeah. mantra. That's it. It's not that much more complicated for us. I love it. Well, we have similar aged kids then. So I have two boys, six and just turned eight. And then I've got a girl in my belly who will be here in a couple of months. <laughs> so yeah. I'm um, a little bit nervous about that, but <laughs> also excited. And then Dr. Becky, besides being a clinical psychologist and the coach of parents everywhere, you also have your own children. Can you tell us about them? I do. Yeah. I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. So boy, girl, boy. Three incredibly different children who require completely different things, I think, in parenting. And so, yeah, they're for sure my my greatest teachers. Okay. So we're all like in this realm of like age zero to preteen. Um, and I think that when I look back on my childhood of being zero to preteen, it looked a lot different than what I see with my kids today. I often actually give myself a lot of guilt that I'm not I'm not there as much as I can and I'm working and all these things. But at the same time, when I grew up in the in the eighties and nineties, I just remember like waking up and sort of being on my own for the day. Like I just had to decide what to do. And and you know, I think that parenting has changed in so many ways. Um, not just because of the world we live in now, but the sort of mandates that we have for parents today. And so maybe I want each of us to maybe talk about, like, what was your childhood like? What, and what did you think you would apply from how your parents raised you when you became a parent? Like, what were some of the fallacies or myths or just like premonitions you had of who you would be as a parent based on who your parents were? Maybe Nate, we'll kick it to you first. Well, that's a great Great question. My childhood, my parents divorced when I was 18 months old. When I asked my mother why she married my dad, she said because all of her friends were getting nice dishes and she wanted some too. And so I grew up kind of going back and forth between my parents' homes. They both immediately remarried and had more children. And I actually loved it. Like I had two Snoopies. I, you know, <laughs> I figured out kind of early on how to work that angle to my advantage, if you will. Mm. So it was, you know, for me, um, I knew my parents loved me. I knew that they believed in me. I knew that they supported me from when I was really young. Um, I knew my dad thought I was funny, which was helpful. And so I, I sort of have a very similar dynamic with my son now. Did they make mistakes? Looking back in hindsight, of course, but like, I, I'm not an expert in parenting. I'm just a parent. And so for me, you know, I, I look at sort of some of the mistakes that I think my parents made and I try not to do the same thing. I try not to repeat the things that I know didn't feel esteeming to me or made me feel uncertain or unsafe in certain aspects. But it was a different planet. I mean, I'm 51 years old. My, my mother used to put me alone on an airplane 
from Minnesota to California when I was growing up at seven. And by the time I was nine, my father said to me, I don't really feel like driving to LAX. Go out, go get your suitcase, look for Bob the driver and just get in the car and I'll see you when you get home. And I was, and I did that at nine years old. So it, you know, I was so independent as a kid. I was so, my parents were so confident in my abilities to move through the world at a young age. We just took the baby monitor out of our daughter's room and she's seven. So it is like the absolute polar opposite. Um, I can't imagine, I mean, obviously the world's changed, but I, I can't imagine giving my children that level of, level of independence. And yet, you know, I do credit that with um, a lot of how I've moved through the world as an adult. Mm. I want I want you to weigh in, Dr. Becky. Do you have questions or comments on Nate's childhood experience? Because I've also heard the same anecdote, which is that like we're so hyper parented now, like and like the fact that people out there right now are listening to this podcast to make themselves a better parent. Like my mom never listened to a podcast about no. or read books about parenting, like. And, and I think maybe we're these like helicopter parents and I've been told, especially with boys, like, oh, you're a kid six. Yeah. Give them the sharpest knife you have in the house and tell them to cut their own vegetables. Like, yeah, let them walk to the park, you know, a couple blocks away by themselves. They've got to learn how to live in this world independently. And I'm like freaking out that that's not okay. <laughs> but, um, that's just one anecdote, but maybe you can jump in and say like, should, should Nate and I loosen up a bit? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not big on shoulds and, and right and wrong. So I'm definitely, okay, I, okay. I don't even, I'm not even big on the word expert either. So putting all that aside, you know, one of the things you said, Nate, that, that struck me is just like this balance of like how much giving our kids our presence and our involvement helps them build confidence and how, how much giving them our belief in their ability to be independent away from us gives us gives them confidence. And and I think both are true, right? I think there's like a big paradox um, in growing up where independence is born from dependence. And it's true for adults too. When you have a partner or you have friends or family where you know you, that they'll support you and they you know that they'll be there, it gives you a lot of bravery to take risks and mm -hmm. try new things because you know kind of you could like glance back behind you and be like, they're there in case I fall, right? Right. Um, and yet at the same time, if you look back and actually they're like hovering on you and following you everywhere, even if they're whispering, you can do it, you can do it. The message you really get is like, I don't really think you think I can do it because you right. seem to be following me everywhere I go, right? So Nate, you, it, it's interesting. We probably fell on opposite sides of this and um, initially in our own childhoods, me and you. And then it seems like we've both maybe corrected to the other side. So I feel like my parents were... Um, were very there for me, you know, and I've talked about this, that my mom worked inside the home, not outside the home, hardest job in the world. And as a result, she was kind of more available in some ways. So like the thing I always joke about is like, if I forgot my bagel for lunch, like she would have driven it over. And I think <laughs> that I could have benefited early on from some version of like, figure it out, like right. go to the cafeteria. And probably I would have remembered it myself better, but also I just would have watched myself cope, right? I feel like watching ourselves cope with something we didn't think we'd get through is really important. And so like that distance is important. So one of the things I think about a lot with my kids is like one of, one of the things that orients me more than anything else is like, 
I kind of get this like bizarre high of like watching them struggle, like, like knowing like, okay, like I know they're going to get through it. I want to give them like just enough from me, but not so much that it like takes away from that resilience. So having come Mm. from like almost the opposite end of the spectrum, like I would have been still now, if I wanted to, my parents would be like, do you want me to drive you to the airport? And I'd be like, I'm okay. Like (laughs) I really don't, but they'd still say that out of love, of course, just like, you know, and yet I feel like that's led maybe you and I, Nate, to like parent probably like a, like a baby monitor. I'm like, I don't know if my kids, at least my third, my third never had a baby monitor. Never. I'm like, he's fine. You know? Really? So oh my gosh. I mean, I also live oh. in a New York City apartment. So like, yeah, uh, you can uh, hear I, the baby crying. You can hear yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and is that something that changed because of it was your third baby or I mean, I'm uh, assuming that's why. Like it's not. If, I feel if like you were birth- a first time parent. Would you still get a baby monitor? Well, Nate, what what number child are you? Or are you two. only two? You're two. number two. Yeah. Oh no, me. Um, sorry, I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Yeah. And Britt, Britt, what are you? I'm the second. I'm the youngest. And and I'm the middle actually, although unofficially because my younger sibling is like so much younger. But yeah, I think first kids, like they're gazed at, and I'm sure are, like all the time. Right. Like we all knew when they rolled over, we like, you know, we all knew exactly. And so they're really wired with being looked at all the time. They expect it more forever. They, you know, are more people pleasing as a result. Usually they're often a little more cautious and third kids. You know, I remember telling one of my friends when my third was like starting to like kind of cruise on things. And I was like, he's so advanced. Like he's doing it so early. And she was like, do you know that that's like really delayed? I was like, oh, really? Like I just like, (laughs) because he was like my, I was like, oh, like if that was my first, I probably would have had him in like PT, like right away, you know? So I think, I think birth order and, and so many other things too. Yeah. They really impact how mm. how right there we are with our kids, how much distance they get. And actually, the irony is I think both of those things, being right there and at times backing away, there's like a dance to it. Kids kids really need both. Mm. Do you actually I – was, I was talking to somebody about this birth order thing the other mm-hmm. day, actually. And um, are there anecdotes you have about how first, second, or third-plus kids grow up and from a like a mental health perspective or maybe like types of careers, because my hypothesis would be um, that maybe the the children uh, that are like maybe second, third and beyond end up with a little bit more loneliness. Maybe they're skewed binary, like they're either super mm-hmm. independent or lonely. Um, and how does that sort of snowball throughout the rest of their life and then vice versa to your point on first kids like because they're getting all this attention if if they don't succeed correctly maybe there's a dep- I don't know but as, I think there is some research around this let me see if I can find it as we're chatting yeah. but there's something about birth order and mental health do you know anything um, about that I have a hard time imagining that like there'd be such broad strokes around that like that you know especially I, I think there's such an interaction between in, you know kind of temperament and environment For sure, I think the thing that's most striking is like your second child is born into the world 
in a family where someone has already started to carve out who they are. They've already started to take on qualities. And so they are wiring their own body around that sibling's dynamics. You have a kid mm-hmm. who's super outgoing or super impulsive, right? Well, there's only so much of any trait to go around in a system. So you are actually trying to figure out who you are relative to that person. Um And so I I can't imagine it's like these kids, first kids, second kids, third kids, you know, kind of quote, do better or do worse as a whole. But certainly I think if everyone listening to this is thinking about their own family, you know, to think, oh, like my second kid, like every part of their being and same thing with a third was impacted by the fact that there was someone else doing something. There was someone else there. Right. And a lot of times first kids like they're chronically still injured by the fact that someone came (laughs) and like took over some of the attention, you know, that was at one point, you know, solely directed to them. Okay. I just found this. Okay. Half a million uh, children. So not like a small study. And this is like published by the NIH. So Mm -hmm. reputable. Um, So the long-term analysis revealed that older children, more firstborns, are likely to have an assertive personality and high self-esteem, but are also more moody and tense. Nate, that's you. Uh, Younger children tend to be more extroverted, but also self-conscious. And middle children are the least assertive and the most agreeable and cooperative. Um, Finally, the study showed that an only child will be most likely neurotic yet with high (laughs) self-esteem. Um, I think that's really interesting. It also says that some cancers are less common among younger siblings simply because they have greater estrogen levels in the umbilical cord. Um, so firstborns have a higher risk of cancer. I don't know. This is just, and I don't know. We can get off this birth order thing, but I think that there's something there to your point because of the way we parent. And I think about it a lot because now that I'm having my third, um, I'm going to have to leave her behind a lot because these other two are so active. They're six and eight, you know, and she's going to just have to come with us. And uh, I really want to make sure I'm not ruining her <laughs> personality yeah. in any way. Isn't that what we all want as parents? Like, can we just all agree that we just don't want to ruin our kids? Like that's, yeah. that's really overlying for Cheers. anything. And that's Cheers, your point man. with with good inside, right, Dr. Becky? Like, you know, we, we all want them to be good inside. We want to be good inside. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of, uh, of differences that we have. What else, by the way, are you seeing in all of your studies and all of your like, you know, your audience, your community, like what are the biggest things that parents today are grappling with? And then Nate, maybe you can affirm if some of those are things you're grappling with as well. Uh, what are, I mean, you know, the, the thing I think, I don't know if I would say it's the biggest challenge, but it's the one that's coming to the top of my list right now is, you know, we live in like such a busy world right now. And I know there's a lot of talk about like technology and raising kids and all that, all of that, like obviously is so important. I guess the way I think of it in a more, you know, zoomed out way is like parents are more distracted than ever. And I am too. Like I do not put myself above this. And what kids need more than anything in their earliest years is like connection and attachment with their parents. And so something I think about a lot is like what percentage of the time are my kids looking at me where they literally see a device between them and me? Right. And and I'm going to say about myself, it's really disturbingly high. And I know that was so different. Mm-hmm. Like, I always think my parents, if they wanted to be distracted from giving me attention, like they would have had to open up a newspaper or something like right. that would be laughable. I'm like, I yeah, would never start reading. But 
Yeah, yeah. Like that seems so effortful. Like I would never just start doing that, you know? So they had right. to play with me or at least say something to my face. And so I think the things we see on the surface a lot with kids, really low frustration tolerance, uh, you know, kind of various forms of quote, bad behavior, not listening. I think a lot of those can actually be drawn back to this, you know, inconvenient truth that kids in their early years need a lot of connection with us. And we're living in a moment where staying connected to ourselves or any one person is increasingly difficult. Hmm. Nate, do you feel the the screen guilt with your kids? No, I mean, you know what? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, just the other day I was taking Oscar to get an, a, immunization. And, you know, I realized that I was in an Uber with him here in Manhattan and I was on my phone while he was talking and looking out the window. And I, I was like, I, this guilt, like just washed over me that I couldn't be in a 15 minute car ride without checking my email and making sure that the office was fine while I was, you know, out of the office at two o'clock with my little boy. We know that to be true. Like we know that, you know, connection to be true. And yes, I mean, I'm a kid of the seventies. I mean, there was nowhere for my parents to get away from me, you know, ever (laughs) or my brothers or my sister. But I think that there's a, um, I do think that the, there's a heightened consciousness in our family, in our household of, you know, our kids sit in restaurants and they're not allowed a device. Our kids have devices two times in their lives. One, in a road trip when they're in the back seat and it's longer than an hour. And two, on an airplane, it's a free-for-all. On an airplane, our son can, like, I, I have photos of him, the side of his head, just, like, mainlining, like, popcorn and watching, like, seven hours consecutively of cartoons. Don't care as long as they, but, but, but beyond that, you know, we don't have devices at the kitchen table. We don't have, um, the kids don't have, our daughter doesn't have an iPad or anything like that. We're very, we limit what, we, we limit that as much as possible. Where, what you were saying, Dr. Becky, is, is I think as the, every parent in today's society probably feels this, is that, you know, we're not really taking care of ourselves. I don't wake up and meditate. I wake up and check my email. Like, you know, I, I, so if we're not doing it for ourselves and our own peace of mind, how are we doing it, you know, on behalf of our kids? And it's, it's, I have to remind myself every time on a weekend, you know, that I'll go on my phone if the kids are watching a movie on a Sunday, but you know, if we're sitting at the table, it's phones down. Um, and it's hard. And it makes you feel terrible. Mm -hmm. I get the urge to also tell them what I'm doing on my phone. So I'll be like, I'm just reading about, I'm just reading about this new study that came out about blah, 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 blah. Like I'm not, like I'm not goofing off. I'm like, I'm doing something productive right now. (laughs) And it's like my own weird self-therapy and my kid's like, cool mom. Like I don't care. Um, (laughs) But I mean, how do you, how do you, what do you advise Dr. Becky, for oh, this what new I advise, world we live in. What I advise isn't necessarily what I do. So let's just, you know, <laughs> name those as two separate things, right? But, you know, what I, I had this period of time, I had this big realization, honestly, around my phone. And I was like, what is it? Like, obviously, I know it steals our attention, blah, 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 blah. But like, what is going on? So like, I would do yoga in the mornings and not like frequently, but like every once in a while. And it would come to Shavasana at the end. And I would tell myself, I was like, Becky, do not get your phone. 
for Shavasana. And like every time I'd be like scrolling on Instagram while I was like, quote, <laughs> doing Shavasana. Like it's like the opposite of Shavasana at the end. And there was this one day, okay, I said this to myself and I honestly felt something happen in my body. It was like nuts. I was like, Becky, Shavasana is enough. I was like, you are doing enough. You are doing exactly what you're, I'm going to cry. I was like, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. There is nothing more important right now than you laying on this mat. And, and, and I, it was the first day that I didn't get my phone. And it's not like I've had some like, you know, like 180, like, you know, in my whole life. But what happened was later that day, I tried to do something. I literally call it PNP time, play no phone. That's what I call it with my kids. And I just say, I'm like, I know I'm on my phone a lot. I'm putting my phone behind two closed doors because I don't trust myself when it's just behind one. It literally has to be in my bathroom, like right. bathroom, closed door, bedroom door closed. And, and often during this time, like there'd always be something. I was like, oh, but I have to get this Amazon order. Or, and I was like, you know what it is? My phone... It does. It like steals my enoughness. It stops me from feeling like I'm doing enough. And so I yeah. said the same thing. I was like, Becky, you doing Play-Doh right now with your son for five minutes, like you're doing enough. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. And I got really hyperbolic. I feel like my body needed it. Like there's nothing more important right now than just sitting here doing Play-Doh. And again, it was like one of the first times that I was able to like resist going to do some random check on my phone. And mm-hmm. so what do I advise? I don't know. I mostly advise being kind to ourselves and trying to do one small thing different and reminding ourselves we're all doing the best. That's what, in general what I advise. That's, That's all I do. But around our phone, I feel like we all need some deeper mantra than like, don't get my phone or don't check the phone. It does something deep to us. To me, I know it steals my feeling enough and there's nothing more important than feeling enough. So if my phone gives mm-hmm. it to me, then I'm going to be addicted to my phone when I'm trying to play Play-Doh. And, and those small moments to me allow me just to like, I always think like just to show up actually in line with what my values are. Right. And then that felt that feels actually like manageable and doable to me, you know, for a few Mm -hmm. moments at a time. Mm -hmm. I think the Apple watch is maybe one of the best inventions because I always worry if I don't have my phone, like that urgent blah, blah, blah is going to happen. Or like my husband got hurt and he's not at the house. I can see on my watch if someone's texting me and it's really important, but it's too small to do anything else with, really. So um, leaving my phone behind is much easier when I have, like, my sort of life support on my wrist. (laughs) That's kind of how I think about it. But on the flip side, to your point, Nate, like, the kids are getting devices earlier than ever. And I'm a different parent than you, and I'm just going to say this out loud. Like, my... My children do have screens more frequently than airplanes and cars. And we live in Silicon Valley. You know, we work in tech. My son, who just turned eight when he was seven, took JavaScript for robotics at Stanford this summer as a camp. And it was his favorite summer camp. And like, I feel like I need to like lean into that and give him more because he loves it. And he, he's not like, on Instagram, you know, he's eight. He's, he's right. like building things and coding. And he yesterday he wrote a his first book using AI. We just did this podcast episode on generative AI with this this company that can help you write fiction with an AI like assistant. And wow. so he published a book. And and I'm like le- trying to lean into this. Um, but there's no rules about this right now. And I feel guilty saying that. And like, I I know guilt is this word that you hate, Dr. Becky. Um, (laughs) but, but like, 
I assume I should keep going with that, right? I mean, it, it, the difference is like, do kids with screens totally end up with anxiety and depression no matter what? Do they, is the pendulum swing backwards if you don't give them enough of it? Like, and, and I think about my childhood, my parents literally had put a TV and a computer in my room by the time I was nine years old. And I just watched TV all day and played with my computer all day. And I think I'm a normal-ish person now. And so I don't know. I like, what does the data say about this these days? And like, how, how do we think about what's okay? And is it age range or is it kid dependent? Like, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, I think there's a, I think when we talk about screen time, I personally think that we miss like the nuance of what like really, really matters. So to me, what matters in our early years, in the kids' early years especially, right, is is knowing that the early years matter so much, right, because we set a blueprint for what a kid brings into the world and expects. That's why, right, that's why we care so much about parenting, right? That's why I care so much about it. It's not just for getting through these early years, although that would be reason enough. It would be, well, okay, my kid's going to be out of my house way more than they're going to be in my house. And I actually can help set them up for all the things that really help in life, right? And one of the things I think I know helps in life, we all know, is being able to tolerate frustration and being able to find yourself when you're having a hard time, right? The longer you can tolerate frustration at an even early age, like that impacts things like reading, that impacts social relationships, that impacts how you handle a tough moment at a job. And Screen time, as an example, isn't all equal, right? I think the screen time, just like anything else in life, that is almost, you know, the stuff I would, I don't want to say stay away from because people, again, use it for different reasons and there's so many different struggles parents have. But screen time where really your kid is just sitting back and experiencing gratification with mindlessness and low effort, to me, that's just not a great circuit that we want to be building and reinforcing in our kids, right? We want our kids' minds to work, not Which their devices to work. Which is different than coding. A hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. With the use of a screen. Right. That's kind of how I think about it. Like, what are the creative things or the things he can build or write, you know, using this device versus a a game or a show he's sitting back watching? And I think even research has just come out saying video games are actually like a hundred times better for your kids than Netflix uh, or like, you know, shows because it's passive versus active. And like, at least your brain is like wired and you're trying to solve a strategy or, you know, whatever. Um, not saying it's better than like using tactile fingers, <laughs> but, but in, there's sort of like an order of operations, I think. And so my hypothesis yeah, the is just freaks me out so badly. Sorry. Really? <laughs> but, uh, I love like, it. That and like the blood just drained out of my body. And I don't even know if that's right or wrong, but like, I just like, I picture like. Did you play video games growing up? I mean, we had like Atari and Intellivision, but we, we didn't all have them. There was one kid in the neighborhood that had it. I was, I thought it was so fun, but like, it wasn't like, I just picture like hours in a room with the blinds drawn and that turns into like pot and crystal meth and everything else in the world and like it's like the instant bullet train and then you have a netflix special written about you because you were playing video games in your room with the with the lights off like i just i don't know i I mean i'd rather have them watch like you know peppa or something with some sort of 
than play a video game. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Like for me, like a cartoon, like not everything, not, but like, you know, our, our daughter and I had a really great, I, I'm totally interrupting you, but you just like scared the shit no, out of me. No, this is perfect. I was like, I was like, uh, you know, our daughter was watching Barbie and she was like, why does everybody look like that? And we, she doesn't watch Barbie anymore, but it, it, it engaged us in a conversation about like, not that we're great parents. I don't know if we are. I mean, I hope we are. I have no clue. But what I did know is that it was an opportunity for us to be like, yeah, not everybody should look like that. And when you look around, does everybody look like that? And Poppy was like, no. And I was like, exactly. So why do you think everybody in the show looks like that and is like wearing a bikini? And she's like, I don't know, dad, you're right. That's really weird. I'm like, well, you know, there's, there's things that, that our kids now watch that they love watching. That's like, um, it's about kindness and connection and probably door the explorer. It's like solving problems and, and, and uncovering mysteries and remembering clues. So I don't know the, the video game thing, but in defense of video games in defense of yeah. video games, two, I two points of interest, opposite ends of this whole thing. <laughs> One, um, Minecraft, which I had heard about from a bunch of parents with older kids. I don't know, Dr. Becky, if you're 11-year-old, uh, you know, your older kids play. Um, and I was like, no, never, Roblox, Minecraft. Like, these are multi-billion dollar companies in, you know, uh, games, like, that are highly um, used by kids. But it's a building, like, back to our point, it's a building game. Like, yesterday my son was like, I made a roller coaster that goes, like, through a ski lodge and takes you to the top of the mountain so you can choose to ski down or roller, like, or do the roller coaster down. And I had to, like, figure out all the access points to connect it. And, like, he's building, he's thinking, he's not social. He's not competing against somebody. He's just, like, using this game as a tool um, and building his Minecraft world. And I thought that was, I was like, well, that seems like okay. And then second point of defense here is there's actually the first ever video game that's been approved as a digital therapeutic, like a digital drug by the FDA for treating ADHD in kids. And it's interesting because basically it's teaching kids meditation. So you have a heart rate monitor on. And as your kid is trying to like beat the game, they have to like keep calm enough to keep their heart rate level in order to advance to the next round. And what it's teaching them is just like awareness and attention um, of their body around anxiety and attention. Um, and uh, literally the FDA just approved this as a, as a drug. And so, you know, I, I agree with you that like some, like I played Doom on CD-ROM when I was little. I don't know if you ever played Doom. It was like you shoot people up. I'm a, I was a nine-year-old girl shooting people, bleeding. They like explode, you know, with bombs and stuff. <laughs> like my kids don't play anything like that. But like, you know, Minecraft and these sort of games that are strategy games, I find to be okay. But again, this is where personalities and parenting are so different. And I mean, Becky, like, how do there's a spectrum right is that how we should was that the takeaway here like yeah I think it's hard to make like any broad strokes even like I do find in general like it's hard like I'm such a deep I have such deep respect for research I would say I have my PhD like that's how I studied too but these broad strokes whenever and I'm sure we all see it in various areas like research says and then you fill in the blank like there's such nuance there like I don't think I've never met 
I've never heard any sentence that ends that way that I've actually found compelling because it misses mm -hmm. like, well, what are we really talking about? What does that really mean? Are video games better than Netflix? I, I personally don't think that makes sense, actually. So I'd want to dig into that study that in general, kids these days actually don't even want to watch Netflix anymore because there's not enough stimulation and constant kind of changes coming their way. That actually feels mm -hmm. disturbing for me that most kids can't even watch a show on Netflix, that they need to make their world mm -hmm. smaller by holding a device in front of them and have a constant stream changing and they shut out the bigger world. So I, I can't imagine that would be good. I, I also just think as parents, we need to be honest with ourselves in a compassionate way to say like, when do I just need a break from engaging with my kids? When do I need to use something for that? And I'm allowed to do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what am I doing you know, with my kid that I actually think is going to be helpful for them building skills, right? And a lot of those things tend to happen off screen in general. And I think the whole screen time debate, what it also really misses is so often we rely on screens and me too, because we, it's harder to help kids build independent play skills than it is to just give them an iPad. And I think the conversation about screens without how do we build kids independent play skills often also misses, you know, like an important angle. Mm -hmm. Nate, what are, what are some of the other things that you and your partner grapple with when it comes to raising your children in today's world? Um, you know, our kids are have like a sort of unique experience in that they're they're on television with us, which is something that we're navigating right now. It's a very weird thing. Our daughter at seven years old is old enough to to she's like used to people coming up to us on the street, um, which is not comfortable for us anymore. So we're thinking about that and whether or not we were willing to continue having our kids on on TV with us or if it's time to sort of not do that anymore. Um, and, um, you know, of course the fact that I'm bringing it up means it's probably not time to do that anymore. But <laughs> the, um, you know, I think, I think for us, you know, we're, I'm trying to preserve like how fast our kids are, are, are growing up. I'm trying to preserve like the sensory stimulation that they're getting. And, you know, I want them like out in the world, seeing things, doing things, you know, we didn't change out of our pajamas yesterday until three o'clock in the afternoon, the entire family. And that's the first time like we've ever done that. And our daughter looked at us and said, Dad, this was the best day ever. And, you know, it was it, we, we live in New York City. We think we're the day before we took them to this art show at the Armory. And we're constantly, should we go to the park? Should we do this? Should we, where should we go have lunch? Let's go explore a different neighborhood. Look, what museum do you guys want to go to? And, I, you know, this year has been the year that we realized that even though we have like Greenwich Village as our, you know, our family's playground, um, our kids are tired on the weekends. And like, I looked at Jeremiah and I was like, don't you remember like not having to go to school on the weekends? Like how great that was to just be like in your room and do nothing and have no plans, nowhere that you had to be and no one hustling you to do anything. Like our kids are like, they're dead. Like they don't want to leave the house. And so yesterday we didn't leave the house until, you know, 4.30 in the afternoon. We went to a friend's house for dinner and our kids just loved it. They played together. They played independently. We did watch a movie at rest time, but then they both hopped up and, you know, wanted to go. Oscar wanted to go in his Lego table and Poppy was, you know, pushing things around a dollhouse. And, 
they're so gender normative too, by the way, which is terrifying because they have two dads. It's like, what, how do you, doesn't anybody want a truck? Doesn't anybody want to, like, <laughs> does anyone want to put on makeup? No. Um, so it just, it, you know, we're learning, we're learning, you know, with, 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 um, with every day, with every sort of major shift, um, mm -hmm. Aki going to the same school as his sister now, and he feels like a real big kid, but his schedule's changed and he's gone for eight hours and, you know, it's just, it's all, that's what we're dealing with. But can I also just say like, there's nothing more fun to me on this earth than watching the world through their eyes. Then, you know, my son now says to me, I saw that. And I say, what did you see? And he said, I saw you laugh. And, you know, I, he, he makes me laugh out loud five times a day. Um, you know, we, you know, I literally just, if I, I laugh out loud from the, what he comes up with or what he says, and our daughter is hilarious as well. I mean, she, Jeremiah was out of town for work one morning and, um, I was responsible for getting both kids dressed and breakfast and out the door to school on time. And Poppy was taking forever. And so Jer came home the next day and he said, how was yesterday morning? And she said, oh, it was so bad, dad. Daddy Nate was like rushing me for no reason. And then he made me eggs that taste like nothing. And I was like, <laughs> guilty. <laughs> You're I think right. it's so important it to watch right. parents fail. Um, right. And this is um, my parenting miss. Like I'm the type three Enneagram overachiever, perfectionist, all the things. And my kids have their biggest challenge is growth mindset. Um, and just like I can't do it yet instead of I can't do it or like I quit, you know, and just like being able to stick with it even if they fail and – um, so, so I've learned that I'm, I'm, when I fail or make a mistake, I literally come to announce it to the family. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. just so everyone knows my garden is a total disaster. I thought I was planting the blueberries next to the lemons and then it turns out the lemon tree over to like all the deer ate everything. I forgot to lock the door. Like, you know, this is just an example that happened recently. And like, you know, I'm going to try again next year in the spring when it's like gardening season. Cause I think I learned a lot of this, you know, so I'm just making announcements. I'm showing them when I'm failed. It's like your eggs don't taste good. You're like owning it. You're like, yeah, I actually don't I'm really know how to make well, great I, eggs. Exactly. <laughs> like I said to Poppy, you know, I don't cook. I clean your father cooks. So sorry, <laughs> you made it. You survived. Right. Um, you're like, my job is to keep you alive. <laughs> exactly. And you're still, and I'm, I, yeah. And I, even though I go to bed every night wondering if I can do that, you are still yeah. alive. So I'm winning. Um, you know, I don't know. It's funny when, when Jerry and I, you know, it's different with two men because we, we chose this. I mean, obviously lots of men and women choose to have children and talk about it and all of this, but like Jeremiah and I via surrogacy with two children, like we had a lot of time. Like Oprah Winfrey asked me what the best thing about surrogacy was once. And I said, tequila. I mean, we, you know, we have like, we had the time and the space to really decide who we wanted to be as parents, to really talk about it as a couple. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like, oh shit, better order a crib on Amazon. It was like, oh, like this is happening. We've elected to do this. We're on this journey with this incredible woman who's helping us have a family. So we better like at least get our shit together as much as we can um, in preparation for this. And, you know, if I could share one thing for all of your listeners, Britt, that really was 
that resonated with me personally and resonated with Jeremiah was we, as we were in this phase of like thinking about what a family looks like for us, um, there was, uh, in one of Brene Brown's books, she had, she published her own family's manifesto. And she said, I'm only publishing this as a, as a means to get people thinking about what their family's manifesto might include. But it was so deeply moving to both Jeremiah and me that we printed it out and framed it. And it was in our daughter's nursery as a reminder. And the main thing that I will always think of when, you know, we're trying to get the kids into the summer camp and everyone's got COVID and, you know, whatever is going on in our house is that she said, Brene Brown said, you're, to her children, you'll always be welcome here. Whether you win, when, whether you win or lose, whether you fail or succeed, what, what, whatever happens in this life, please know that you will always be welcome within these walls. We will always welcome you. And so, you know, that's sort of like the top line when I was thinking about be, being on this podcast with you, Britt, and, and Dr. Becky, I was like, ooh, I don't really have much to say. I sell sofas for a living, and I happen to have two children. But but that was the one thing that I really wanted to to say, because I, I believe in that as a parent. Becky, Dr. Becky, I love this idea of the parenting manifesto. Have you... Have you seen a lot of this? Is this something more parents should do? I'm like, I I mean, sorry, Brene. I'm going to just copy paste a little bit of that and maybe add a couple of my own lines too. And I'm going to put <laughs> right. that in my entryway. Yeah. I want to look at that every time I come in my house and, and I want well, my kids to see it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that idea. Should parents, I mean, I, I think what it brings up for me is in systems in general, right? Like the way I tend to think about parents is the same way I think about organizations, right? And what kids need is the same thing we need from a CEO, like a sturdy leader. And I know in an organization, probably you all know that too, that it's really easy to lose sight of your goals. And if you're not you know, kind of reminded of like, what are we trying to do here? What do we really care about? It's very easy to like think of a million different ideas and initiatives and it actually gets you very away from that core focus. So it seems like a manifesto is in some ways like just like a, a daily reminder, putting it back on the top of your list of like, these are the things that we really hold to be true. These are the things that we really value here. And going back to, again, how hard it is to parent in a world of distraction, those things are easy to forget, actually. And mm -hmm. it sounds like if they're literally plastered in someone's room or in your door, it, it just brings it back to the top of the list. So that's always helpful for me, too. I think you're right. I mean, we, 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 my husband and I are both entrepreneurs and we talk about running our family, um, like a, a different type of business. And we actually have done the value. We have five values. They're things like curiosity and empathy and, and things like that, which you do when you start a company. Typically you want to like lead your team with these yeah. values. So you know what's outside of it. And then I do think companies often have like a brand manifesto. And, and so I, I love that as a next step. Um, the other thing that my husband and I do, um, we do like quarterly check-ins, kind of like you would check in like with your boss. Um, 
Are you sure? Of, of just like, well, of our marriage and like our parenting, like, what do we want to try next quarter? What do we want to do differently? Or is this going okay? And, you know, even for our greater families, like, are we interfacing with our parents like enough, you know, as, as time's moving on, you only get so many visits with them. I think, you know, yeah. there's a graph that came out just over this last weekend about, um, your amount of time spent with different individuals in your life mm-hmm. and how that changes from like zero to 90, right? And like this time with your kids is 20 years, right? And it's like yeah. your friendships decline, your, you know, a lot of things decline. Then your time with your partner increases after the kids leave. But like your time with your family, your siblings and your parents after age 20, I mean, we're talking like depending on who you are and how far away they live, like maybe a few dozen interactions for the rest of your life. And, and so, um, there's this balancing act, I feel like that we're all trying to do with how often, how much time we're spending (laughs) in general. And, and speaking of which, I think like a lot of us aren't spending enough time alone when we do have these children or with our spouse. And so I was going to ask each of you, like, what do you do to ensure you're getting your partner time and your alone time? Because I think a lot of parents out there, are suffering from this right now. And I know I know people with kids who are seven and nine who've never had a date night. Like they've never gone yeah. out. They've never left their kids yeah. at home overnight with, with somebody else for an overnight. You know, what do you guys do to make sure that you're focusing on all the right things outside of children? Um, I could jump in there. So I, I think I care deeply about both those. And I think that, you know, while people – might say like, oh, good insider, Dr. Becky, she's these parenting scripts or strategies or a book. Like to me, the more overarching thing I hope I leave a mark on is is really like changing this idea of like parenthood and especially motherhood as martyrdom. And this idea that like good mothers just like pour themselves out um, over and over and over um, is is honestly the top of my list of things I want to change. And I think that does start with how we spend our time and what parts of ourselves, like Nate, what you were saying about Brene Brown's manifesto, like you know, no matter what, you'll be welcome. To me, a message in there is like, we love all parts of you. Like there's yeah. nothing we're going to do that's not going to be welcome that we can't figure out. And one of the things I think happens as a parent, and we're fed this also in the media, definitely I can speak, especially as a woman, is the parts of you that are not a caregiver, like not only do they not matter once you have a kid, but they're like selfish and they're, you know, there's like a negative connotation. So I very much say bullshit to that. I know you do too, Britt. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I think a lot about now that I work all the time, is just literally carving out my calendar. Like the dates I make with myself or every Thursday morning, I work out with this like group of friends. We then have breakfast after. That is carved out my calendar. Everyone at Goodens I know is I come in at 11 on Thursdays for that reason. Like it's yeah. not a secret. So, or my, yeah, like therapy is carved out on Wednesday and on my calendar it says therapy. Like it's just there <laughs> and it's carved out rather than the way we all carve out time for our kids, for their carpools, their activities. And then a lot of us are like, well, I guess I'll take what's left. Guess what's left? Nothing, right? Except for rage. Mm-hmm. That's what's left. <laughs> and right. in terms of my partner, it's it, this is something I think I've been mindful of, especially because it wasn't, you know, my parents, I feel like we're such quintessential mom and dad that they didn't, you know, seem to as much prioritize being like husband and wife. And so you know, when we go out or when we take a trip or when we, you know, go out to dinner without them and my kids protest, I think it's helpful. Like I say to my kids, like, oh, why? when they're like, why can't you go with us? I was like, look, I love being your mom. I do. I love being your mom. I also 
love being a friend or I love being a wife. And that's really important to me. And the way I can do that best is actually the time I spend with your dad without you all around. Like two things are true. I love our time together and it's important for me for us to have time when you're not there. And I feel like the more I own it, like really owning that, there's a sturdiness. I'm not looking for their approval. I'm not looking for them to understand. That's actually like a really coercive way of communicating with kids. And I focus on convincing myself and then just giving them a very different model, hopefully, for what they'll take into, you know, their parenthood journeys if they if they seek to walk down that arduous path. (laughs) It's hard not to give our kids permission. You know, I totally respect what you're saying. But like, I feel like that's a trap that a lot of parents fall into. And, you know, my husband and I both travel for work, which luckily we're not you know, in gone for three months. I mean, usually it's 48 hours, but, you know, our kids are at the age now where they're starting to whine a little bit about that. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, I say to them every time, do you want to live in this house? Do you want to go to this school? Do you want to go to, you know, do you want to go dead on this trip this summer that we're planning? Well, daddy has to work. That's the way it is. And someday you're going to have to work. So, you know, sorry. I love you. I'll FaceTime you. <laughs> Don't forget to say goodnight. See ya. Um, with me, it's, it's, I need 15, 20 minutes, half hour to do something that's entirely for me. I don't care if it's walking down this, this, the block to go get a coffee and sit outside alone or going to get a manicure or just something where I'm not speaking and I'm not answering and I'm not responding to re- the, you know, 7 million requests. Um, but it's, it's just that. And I will do it frequently enough that I feel recharged. I don't go once a month. I go, you know, once every two days um, to just be like, I'll, I'll be back in, in a minute. And, you know, it's like I always think of like the old like he went out to get milk. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going out to get milk. I'm going out to recharge and reset. And Jared and I, since we were married, you know, we've always been really hyper aware of the fact that it's going to be he and I. Um, at some point and we have 18 years or 20 years maybe, and that's it. And so we're, it's done two things for us to be honest with ourselves and with each other about that. One, it's made this time even that much more important and special to us. We really do cherish like these, these little, I call them the moments in between. It's not the fancy vacations. It's not the, you know, whatever. It's like the, the, the Friday at 4 p.m. when we're walking home from the grocery store and just talking like it's those moments that really matter to us. And then, um, you know, we we really work on still liking each other. You know, we <laughs> we we forgive each other constantly for who we're not um, and who the other person wants the other person to be, because, you know, in 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 literally 16 years or maybe even 14 years. I'm going to wake up next to him and he's going to wake up next to me and we're going to be like, okay, all right, we're fine. Right. You're still going to go do that thing. I'm still going to read this book before bed. Um, we're still going to go to some antiques fair somewhere and think that's fine. Right. Right. We're good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I, I, it feels so far away. I don't know what that day is going to look like, but I think about that too. And I'm like, Oh my God. I feel like it's Um, tomorrow, but I feel like it's like in an hour. Last night, um, last night my husband was out of town and, um, and I was putting my kids to bed and then I, I just said, literally my kid was in bed and I was about to turn off the lights and leave. And then I just thought to myself, screw it. I said, 
sleepover in mama's room tonight. We're doing it. And so we, we got, everyone came, the, both boys came to my room and I have a new puppy who's laying in a crate next to my bed and I've got a baby in my belly. And everyone was like so hyped and like we're all saying goodnight. And I was just falling asleep. And the two words that I was thinking to myself was savor it. Just savor this moment. Like these little boys aren't going to want to sleep with their mom <laughs> in a few years. Like I've got like the best like loving family around me and it's not perfect, but we're making it work and we're having fun and we're learning the whole time. And I think that's what parenting is really about, right? And just embracing these times that are amazing and working through the challenges and um, it's it's ever changing and, and it's ever changing with ourselves and our families and with this culture we're living in. So we're just so grateful. Like we're just so grateful for the opportunity. Versions of science and politics and everything for us to make it. You that created we have, them. You know, yeah. it's incredible. So it's incredible. And we lose sight of that often, I think, as a society. Like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I created these human beings and I get to like help them learn how to live in this world. And like, that's really cool sometimes, you know, so. And they get to help us learn how to. <laughs> and they yes. reflect back on it. Yeah, actually they're, yeah. Te- they're our teachers more than anything. So, well, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you both so much. I highly respect each of you as parents, as professionals. I think a lot of people look to you both for like, what am I doing in this world? And as guides to follow, whether you like it or not. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing some of your insights of parenting then and now and and how we are continuing to change the game. Dr. Becky and Nate Burkus, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Pleasure. <laughs> wow. I can't believe we just had two of the biggest power hitters here to talk about their own experiences with parenting and most importantly, their challenges. I think it's really important that parents are vulnerable with each other, even if you're one of the top clinical psychologists in the country. Even Dr. Becky has problems she's still sorting through and grappling with. And I think for all of us just to know that it's okay we don't have it figured out just yet, that's the foundational element of what I took away from this episode. A few other things that I thought were really intriguing. Number one, what is right for you may not be right for other parents or families. You saw this when you heard me and Nate discussing the differences between whether or not to let your kids play video games. I personally think it's actually okay. I think they're Minds are activated, especially if they're building a world in Minecraft and they're using creativity, but Nate clearly does not agree and that's okay. I don't think less of him. I don't think he thinks less of me. I think we just have a different type of philosophy. Sometimes I also think we just need to all chill out a bit and not be so overprogrammed as parents. I definitely believe the pendulum has swung all the way back since the days we were kids when our parents kind of left us alone a lot. <laughs> and maybe I'm just talking for myself, but I remember summers where my parents were working inside or outside of the house and I kind of just fended for myself. I didn't have summer camp programmed for me every week of the summer and different activities every single day. I I watched a lot of TV. I made peanut butter and banana sandwiches. I sort of figured it out. And Nate actually alluded to this when he said just the other day, he let his 
kids stay in pajamas till 3 p.m. and they just did stuff around the house in pajamas. I love it. Let them be under-programmed and see what happens. Number three, I totally agree with Dr. Becky when she says that personal and relationship time literally needs to be blocked off on your calendar, sometimes even during your workday. I also love what Nate said that, you know, he has to travel a lot and it's okay to leave your kids, especially if you explain to them why you're leaving them and that, you know, you have work or you have friends and you are a human outside of being their parent. And that matters to you just as much as being their parent. I will say I'm leaving this episode a bit more cautious about how I interact with my own screen time and how that affects my kids' feelings of being seen. It's already something I felt bad about before, but I'm going to make an effort to try even harder to put the phone down or to leave in another room or in another two rooms, as Dr. Becky said, so that I'm not even tempted. Because overall, seeing your kids, really seeing them, is something that matters most. And I want to end by referencing the wholehearted parenting manifesto that Nate actually brought up, spoken and written by the amazing Brene Brown. And I thought I'd read it to you as a tribute to, you know, a flight of inspiration you might take if you decide to create your own parenting manifesto as you listen to this episode. I know I'm definitely going to try to write one myself but I might also just take a few pieces from this. So here it goes. Brene Brown's Wholehearted Parenting Manifesto. Above all else, I want you to know that you are loved and lovable. You will learn this from my words and actions. The lessons on love are in how I treat you and how I treat myself. I want you to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. You will learn that you are worthy of love, belonging, and joy Every time you see me practice self-compassion and embrace my own imperfections, we will practice courage in our family by showing up, letting ourselves be seen, and honoring vulnerability. We will share our stories of struggle and strength. There will always be room in our home for both. We will teach you compassion by practicing compassion with ourselves first, then with each other. We will set and respect boundaries. We will honor hard work, hope, and perseverance. Rest and play will be family values as well as family practices. You will learn accountability and respect by watching me make mistakes and make amends and by watching how I ask for what I need and talk about how I feel. I want you to know joy so together we will practice gratitude. I want you to feel joy so together we will learn how to be vulnerable. When uncertainty and scarcity visit, you will be able to draw from the spirit that is a part of our everyday life. Together we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. We will laugh and sing and dance and create. We will always have permission to be ourselves with each other. No matter what, you will always belong here. As you begin your wholehearted journey, the greatest gift that I can give you is to live and love with my whole heart and to dare greatly. I will not teach or love or show you anything perfectly, but I will let you see me and I will always hold sacred the gift of seeing you truly, deeply, 
seeing you. Again, that's from Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. It's her wholehearted parenting manifesto. And I thought that was a beautiful way to end this. And may we all remember what it means to be a wholehearted parent who can see our kids, who can make mistakes, and who can have fun in the process. Good luck out there. If you liked this episode, I would love for you to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you want to follow me, I'm at Brit on just about every social network, or you can follow the podcast at First In Line. 